Welcome to Galaxy Con Talks Comics with Mike Broder and Patty Hawkins. This is part one of a three-part conversation we had with Jim Shooter. Jim was gracious enough to chat with us for over three hours, and we barely even scratched the surface of his incredible career. Hopefully, we'll get him back for a follow-up sometime soon. Welcome to GalaxyCon Talks Comics with your hosts, Mike Broder and Patty Hawkins. Join us each week as we talk to some of the biggest names in the comic book industry, both past and present. Make sure to follow us online at GalaxyConTalksComics.com. Hi, welcome to another edition of GalaxyCon Talks Comics. I'm Mike Broder, and with me is my effervescent co-host, Patty Hawkins. Hello, everybody. How y'all doing today? Shout out to all our friends in the Legion of Superheroes Facebook page. We're all very excited. To, uh, we had Keith Given here a while ago, so our next guest, of course, will be very prevalent for those interested in Legion history. Without further ado, he's one of the giants, figuratively and literally, of the comic book industry. Uh, started at 13 years old with uh, DC, writing stories for the Legion of Superheroes, writer of Secret Wars, big run on the Avengers, Marvel's editor-in-chief during the height in the 80s, found co-founder, founder, editor of Valiant Comics, founder, uh, editor, Defiant Comics, Broadway Comics. I mean, his resume is gigantic. Here he is, Mr. Jim Shooter. Hi. Hi, Jim. Hey. I, I apologize for looking so scruffy. I, I just got out of the hospital, and I, I couldn't shave in there. So, oh, God. But, but, you you know, just got out? Yeah, yeah, just 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 uh, yesterday evening. Oh God! Wow. Okay. Well, we're right. we're glad we're glad to see you out and home. And yeah, uh, and I'm I'm okay now. Okay, good. Good. I'm a little scruffy too, so you know we'll. <laughs> good we'll, company. Uh, you know it's that it's that uh, it's that quarantine life. <laughs> well, yeah. So in 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 all your years, I mean, you know, do you ever think you'd live to see anything like this? I, I've never done this before, and, and this is really interesting. I like it. If it's okay with Jim, I think let's let's go ahead and get, go back to the beginning. Uh, you know, you're you're a teenager, and uh, to help support your family, you wrote comics. Let's go just go back into those days, if that's okay. Oh, sure. Well, the thing is, I stopped reading comics when I was eight years old. That would have been around 1959, because they were boring, and the only things really around were Superman and Batman. This newfangled Flash thing came along, which was, you know, that was a little fun. But I, I just, you know, I lost interest. And then I was, again, in the hospital when I was 12 years old. And in a kid's ward in a, in a, a hospital in those days, uh, they had four kids in a ward. And there were tons of comics. Because every, in those days, they were everywhere, you know. And they were very popular. I had a week to kill. And uh, so I started reading some of these. And the DC comics were all pristine. Like, nobody, nobody opened them. Uh, the Marvel comics were all this, these newfangled Marvel comics were all dog-eared and ratty, you know, because everybody read them. So I, I, I read them and I, I thought, hey, these are pretty good, you know, and they're not like like the other ones. And I started trying to think, like, well, why are why do I like these better? You know, what's wrong with these? And what's you know? And and I, I was 12 years old, and I I, I decided, you know what, I'm going to try to do this. And so I spent a year, literally a year, studying. Not, not, I mean, I don't read the comics. I love the comics, but uh, I was really trying to analyze, you know. And then when I was 13, I wrote my first, uh, well, my first three stories and sent them in. I sent the first one in and I got a, a letter back saying, send us another one, right? I sent them two more. And, uh, and then I get a call from the editor at, at DC, Mort Weisinger. He said he wanted to buy those three. See, I lived in Pittsburgh, 400 miles away from New York. He said he wanted to buy those three, and he wanted to start using me as a regular writer. And uh, my first assignment was a Supergirl story. And the, the way the assignment went was Supergirl, 12 pages, next Friday. I said, yes, sir. So, uh, so I started you know, writing uh, regularly. And, and then Legion of Superheroes became my regular book. In yeah. five years, I did all but four issues. And the only reason I didn't do those four issues is because the editor wanted to do them himself. Okay. Mm. You know? So, uh, but I, I, you know, I... I also did Superman. I did all the all yeah. of the Superman family titles. Jimmy Olsen, Superboy, Supergirl, uh, World's Finest. And I even did Captain Action. I created Captain Action. You know, so I worked my way through high school, you know. And, what was uh, the first, that first story that you sent in on spec? Right. What, what was the character? Uh, it was Legion of Superheroes. It was the origin of Sunboy. It was Dr. Regulus or something. 
funny thing is I sent, I, like I said, I sent them three, three stories. And uh, there was the, the, the first one I sent was like this origin of Sunboy thing. And the, 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 the second two were, were uh, it was a two-part story, two-issue story. And so, uh, yeah. And, and, but the funny thing is that, that was the first one they published. They published them out of order. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the first one that I wrote was the third one published. So that was 346, maybe. And uh, the first one I wrote came out as 348. Uh, but in those days at DC, there's no continuity. So it didn't matter. You yeah. covered them in any order. It didn't matter. And, um, and you can read 100 Superman stories in any order. It wouldn't make any difference. You know? And uh, one of the things that you did right away is that you, again, with the, these new characters you introduced, is that you created more close quarter Legionnaires. Because at that point, everybody just sort of had a, a hold imposed distance power. Yeah, they point their fingers and, and stuff happens. And I, I thought, I need somebody, you know, who can break through a wall or, you know, or, you know, uh, you know, do something physical. So, you know, I thought, well, what's physical? And I, I thought, well, you know, martial arts, hey, you know, karate, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, want, I wanted this uh, character, Feralad, who, who was metallic and strong, and, you know, <clears throat> I guess sort of like Colossus, you know, later. Princess Projectra, she created illusions, which at least is visual. Yeah. And the other one's the bad guy, Nemesis yep. Kid. He's the traitor. You know, Keith Giffen has been uh, trying to kill off Karate Kid ever since. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, what's wrong with it? You know, but what, I, who cares? DC keeps bringing him back, so there you go. Yeah. The thing is, like I said, there was no continuity, right, yeah. at DC. And I asked the editor about continuity. He said, we don't do that. And I said, oh, okay. But then I realized, since I did the Legion every month, I owned the future. There was, that was the only book set in the future. So yeah. I could do my continuity and not interfere with anybody. And so I started doing continuity in the Legion of Superheroes. It, it worked out pretty well. DC sales were plummeting in the 60s. Marvels were rising. In the very first issue of mine they published, it was one of those postal statements of ownership. Mm. And it, the, the sales of Legion were about 500,000 copies an issue. In the last issue I did, the sales were about 500,000 copies an issue while everything else was falling. You know, I held my own, so I felt pretty good. Who, who was the editor on the book? Mort Weisinger. Was Mort Weisinger, Weisinger was, it, it, they didn't it, call him editor-in-chief, but he was like the head editor at, uh, at uh, DC. Who and, wrote um, you, that, who, that first letter that you got back, was that from Mort or was that from yeah. somebody else in the office? No, it was from Mort. Okay. Yeah. And, you had a very unique relationship with Mort, didn't you? Well, when he thought I was a college student, you know, yeah. he thought I was like 1920 or something like that. And I was, you know, I was 13 when I started. So he, he, he then he started calling me at a regular, regularly scheduled phone call every, every Thursday night, right after the Batman TV show. Okay. Mm-hmm. So uh, he would call me and he, we would go over whatever I'd sent him that week. And he also called me whenever else he needed to call me. But so the, this, the, one of the first times he called me, he said, look, you know, he's like, I'm going to fly you up to New York. I'm going to put you up in a hotel. You know, we'll pay for everything. We just want to teach you some stuff. I, I said, um, uh, and he, he's, how old are you? And I said, well, I just turned 14. He said, put your mother on the phone. <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, she was on board. It's, you know, yeah. it, 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 it didn't bother her. So, uh, so, you know, so I got back on the phone with me. He says, all right, he's, he's going to be a regular writer, you know, and I don't care if you're 14. He says, I'm going to treat you just like I treat everybody else. And I said, oh, okay. What that meant was that he was going to scream at me all the time and use obscenities and stuff. Anyway, but he taught me a lot. I mean, credit where credit is due. He taught me so much. He was grooming you to be as an apprentice. Well, yeah, I mean, like years later. Like, you know, he's screaming all the time, you moron, why can't you spell? What's this supposed to be? And what I found out was years later, after Moore was retired, and I was talking to his assistant at the time, who was E. Nelson Bridwell. Uh, Nelson said he used to take my stuff around and show the other editors and, and brag about his discovery, you know. I said, what? The moron? You know? And, 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 uh, and, and, and he also, when I would go up to the office, which I started to do regularly, uh, he'd sit me down and talking to me about marketing and licensing and finance and stuff. And yeah. I'm thinking, why do I need to know this? You know, um, but you didn't question anything with Mort, you know, didn't, he didn't dare ask a question. And, and then he also, he sat me down with Jack Adler to learn about uh, in-house production and printing production. 
and uh, George Klein and Tatiana Wood and just to learn about the whole business and the business of the bridge. I used to wonder, what's going on here? You know, and Nelson told me he was grooming me to have a job like his, you know. So, you know, it didn't work out that I ended up at D.C., but all that stuff came in real handy when I started at Marvel. Oh, yeah. Well, it's interesting because yeah. you're probably one of the few guys who actually had that kind of an education leading into an editor-in-chief role. Yeah. Most of these guys don't, you know. No, I think I think that uh, I think I'm I'm unique in that regard. I mean, uh, Paul Levitz, you know, I mean, he's you know very he's brilliant and he's you know I think he's an uh, MBA and and uh, he's financially savvy and all that stuff. And and so we're like one like two of the people who have business experience and also did creative. You know, yeah. The only difference between me and Paul is that I started companies and he didn't. You're both well known for work on the Legion. Yeah, yeah, he did a good job. Yeah. He did a really good job. That's true. It's a testament to both of you because, again, you know, guys like me, I mean, sure, we know canon and apocrypha and all this nonsense, but uh, we couldn't tell you how exactly the staples work and the layouts, <laughs> and stuff, which was. This, yeah, this, this this was the logistics and stuff like that, which comes very much into play in an editor's job. That so much of us as fans, you know, we don't get no prizes for pointing out the, that sort of nonsense. So I had to learn all that stuff. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'll tell you what, it was when I started, uh, I first started at Marvel, it was just the editor. They, they called me associate editor, but I was the editor. And then when I became editor in chief two years later, uh, you know, now I'm on the phone with the printer and stuff. It's real handy to use the right words, you know, and to, to be able to speak intelligently about the printing. And, and, and the production department used the right words. You know, all, all that stuff came back, and it was really, it was very helpful. When you were working with Mort, did he ever talk to you about the stuff that he had done with the uh, the pulps in the twenties and thirties? No, not so much. He told me about you know uh, him and Julie founding the Scienceers, and it, but the thing is, he had a book coming out at that time called The Contest. It was about the Miss America pageant. See, Mort Mort was very wealthy. But the way he made most of his, I mean, DC paid him pretty well, I guess. But the way he made most of his money is he wrote magazine articles, okay? And, and what he would do is he would research some topic, and then he would write articles based on that topic. And in those days, you know, it would be published in one magazine, and another magazine would want it. And then, and he'd, so he'd sell it again and again and again. Like, for instance, he became like the world's leading authority on the, on the Miss America pet. He oh, wrote wow. a lot of articles about it and made a lot of money from it. Also, his his wife Thelma, um, uh, she had uh, multiple sclerosis, and so you know that drove him crazy. And, and so he became the world's leading lay authority on on MS. You know, and, and she she went into remission. As long as I was around, she was in remission. And I I, I don't know. I guess stay that way. But so then he used all this knowledge to write, you know, articles about MS. So that was that was his mo. I mean, he had this fabulous mansion in the Great Neck. You know, he, he worked hard. So did you. Uh, <laughs> his you go to school all day, and then you come home and you work all day. At what point did the initial uh, excitement sort of fade, and then it became work? Well, I, I, it, it never, the excitement never faded. I always, okay. loved I always right. loved it. it. But you know, there is a certain element of grinding it out. You know, you yeah. have to sit there and do it. I mean, uh, I used to sit at one end of the couch and actually wore out <laughs> the armrest. You know, it was you know because I'm sitting there with my elbow on the on the armrest doing my stuff. You know, it was, it was a lot of work. You know, yeah, and it, it wasn't easy. And I also at the same time, I'm in high school, and I knew if I didn't get an academic scholarship, since I couldn't play football that well, you know, I wasn't going to college. Did your classmates know that you were doing this? Were you the kid that? Hell yeah, Jimmy Shooter. He writes comic books. Or yeah, this... nobody thought it was a big deal. It was like right. instead of working as a dry cleaner, this other job, you know. Yeah. There weren't that many, especially for DC Comics. I don't think there were that many older high school kids and college kids, you know, right. who, who read comics. And, and most of them just didn't care about it. You know? yeah. And, uh, and I, I didn't care that they didn't care. I, I, I was having a ball, you know, when I was doing this stuff. Um, and, you know, I, I got to fly up to New York and put me up in a hotel. Now, these days... If a, if, a, if a 14 or 15-year-old kid went to the airport by himself, got on an airplane, flew to New York, 
checked into a hotel. They'd arrest, they'd arrest the parents, you know. But in those days, nobody thought anything of it, you know. I mean, the airline didn't think anything of it. The, the hotel didn't think anything of it. The people in the office didn't think anything of it. Did you know, they give you a tag, or is that like a 70s thing? So sometimes the kids were traveling alone at the airplane. They would literally tag them. They had a big no, tag. No, no, no. no. And, and sometimes I had to – sometimes they paid for it, and then sometimes I had to pay for it myself. I'll tell you why in a minute. So I was when I did that, I was flying student standby. <laughs> okay. And just to give you an idea of how old I am, the round trip ticket to New York, student standby, was $25. How about that? And then, and then I you know, drove home in my Model T. <laughs> you went through uh, your, your little apprenticeship with DC, and then you went to college, and then you oh, thought... Yeah, Patty, Patty, before we get there, yeah. why did you have to pay to fly up on your oh, own? Yeah. Well, the reason I had to pay to fly on my own is because at DC Comics, you did not dare be late with something. You did not dare because that was a kiss of death. You know, if you didn't deliver, it's over. You know, and so sometimes, you know, I'm going to school and working, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, trying to get stuff done, and and sometimes I'd go down to the wire, and the only way I could get that script in on the day it was due was to get on a plane and take it myself. Yeah. And, and then the bus fare from Newark Airport to New York City was 55 cents. I thought that was outrageous. Hmm. You know, you know, one way or another. And I did, I, I ended up having to do that more often than I should. But like I said, I'm, you know, I'm going to school and every once in a while I try to be a kid. So a funny, speaking of, uh, of kids, he's not a kid anymore. I just got a text from uh, George's Genty. Oh, yeah. And uh, he told me George is a very, very good friend of mine. And yeah. I know from before he ever even worked with you, but he just right. wanted, he wanted to say hi to you. I think we gave him his first job in common. Yes. yes. Yeah. Dogs of yeah. War. Yes. And, 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 and I'm, I'm going to lead somewhere with that. But George is, um, is a very, very close friend. I knew him when he was working in a comic store down in Miami when he did Dogs of War. Yeah. He was uh, working for BAM in Miami. And he has become, I mean, he is incredible artist now. Oh, yes, yes. I mean, he was a little raw when he started out. He was still good, you know. Yes. Uh, but, 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 you know, he, he learned quickly, and uh, uh, he, he's gotten dangerous. Yes, and which brings me to this one. You discovered and mentored a lot of young talent over yes. the years in Marvel and then again at Valiant and again at Defiant. And, and a Broadway, and I mean, some people that have gone on to be big, huge names, you, I think you probably discovered more people than anyone else. When I was in Marvel, I mean, of course, I'm looking for guys, you know, and, I'm, and we looked at samples. I, I was very, you know, I, I got my first job sending in a sample over the transom, right? So I had great respect for people who put their stuff in a manila envelope and sent it off. And then I, I, I really got incredibly lucky because, you know, I needed help. And I got Archie Goodman, you know, who was editor-in-chief before me. I got him to come back and run the Epic line. I got Larry Hama, you know, Louise Simonson, you know, and then eventually well, I had Al Milgram, and eventually Carl Potts and Bob Budians. I had some great guys, and they were all good at finding artists. You know, Larry Hama would found a lot of good people. I mean, Carl Potts used to handle more samples than anybody. You know, I mean, so I had a, I had a whole army of, of people who, who knew what they were looking at. So we were good at that. We, we were pretty good at that. And I, so we started off a lot of people, Bill Sienkiewicz, for instance. And the main thing is, is that you guys were able to discern who could do really good pinup art and then who could have the chops to do sequential art. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> some guys were yeah. just cover artists, you know. Yeah. And, and some guys could do the continuity. And so, I mean, like, you know, if a guy was great, but he didn't do good you know, storytelling, but he could do great covers, hey, he's going for covers. Or you put him on strips that are, you know, a little less high profile, get a little bit under their belt before they yeah, start. Yeah, and then they learn. Yeah, because if you work for Larry Hama, you learn, or else. <laughs> <laughs> and there was so much more going on than just the regular line. Yeah, you said you had. Epic line was going on under your stewardship. A lot of experimental stuff that was just let's throw it against the wall. I mean, I think Star Comics was a noble experiment. I call yeah. me crazy, but I think why not? 
No, and it did well for a while. You know, Care Bears, for instance, sold really well. And it was also the number one comic book in England, you know, really? by a long shot. It was, it was the most popular uh, comic in England. Uh, we, we, just, we had a lot of uh, uh, good stuff. Masters of the Universe did well. The Thundercats did well. But, you know, I mean, there, there was a few that maybe didn't work out quite so well. You know, Spider-Ham is uh, one of the biggest things in the world right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, that was, uh, I guess, it was Tom DeFalco and Larry cooked that up. I think Larry was the main driving force behind it. And it was silly as hell. <laughs> and, you know, a little kid would read it. And I, it was like a cartoon book. But when we read it, you know, we saw the little in-jokes and stuff. And it was even better. I was a big fan of the artist, uh, Steve. Was it Molière was the last name? I didn't ever, could never quite figure it out. But the he did those crazy strips for uh, Larry in the uh, the tail end of Crazy, the uh, kinetic kids and all that wackiness. Which oh yeah, I, I, I can't remember his name either. That's a long yeah. time. What what was the first convention that you remember going? Oh. to? Well, I didn't know there were conventions, you know, and so I think uh, somebody from the Pittsburgh Comics Club tracked me down somehow, and I you know, like I got to know those guys a little bit, and they said, hey, why don't you come with us to the convention? I said, what convention? What's a convention? What are you talking about? You know, and and what they were talking about was the uh, Phil Sewing's uh, July Con, okay, and on the fourth, you know, fourth, fourth of July weekend, and so I, you know, I drove up to New York. They, I don't know how they got there, but I, I drove, and so I go to this convention. And I'm, I'm looking around, like I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, the first thing I see is Joe Sinnott surrounded by a group of people. He's got some kid, some guy's, you know, drawing pad book. And he's just freehanding in ink a, a, a picture of the thing. Oh, wow. You know, and, and I, I'm tall enough to see over the crowd, you know. I, 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 that's just, you know, you know, and it was it was really funny. They, um, I think the first time I was on stage, I, I never met Gil Kane. I'd worked with him at D.C., but mm. I, he was never in the office when I was. So one of the guys says, hey, you want to uh, want to come to this? Uh, this uh, he, he's doing a. Um, an interview. And in fact, there was a guy from the Pittsburgh Comic Club who was conducting the interview. So it was, you know, just him and Gil on stage. Uh, his name was Mark Lehrer. Later, actually, did some work for Marvel. So anyway, we, the room was packed. There were like 500 people. We went, I'm standing in the back, you know, because there's you know, no place to sit. And so Mark, uh, he asked him, uh, he said, what do you think of these new artists, I mean, Kaluta and, and Starlin? And he says, they're not picture makers. <laughs> he did, nah, they're no good. <laughs> and then, and then Mark, Mark Lara says, he says, who's your favorite writer to work with? He says, writers are idiots. <laughs> so any, anyway, he says, surely there must be somebody you enjoyed working with. And he says, well, there's this one young man from Pittsburgh, right? And Mark says, are you aware he's in the room? He says, well, no, I never met him, you know? So they called me up on stage, and I shook hands with Gil King. 500 people went wild. Wow. So, it was really cool. It's cool. That's great. I assume Gil was dressed to the nines as he was. Oh uh, yeah, Gil, Gil yeah. was very, you know, very fancy. Very guy. dapper, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, you know, and the thing is, as cranky as he was, you know, as curmudgeonly as he was, he was a great guy. He was, he was, Heard. you know, and and the reason he thought I was a good writer is because I did layouts for him. <laughs> mm. I made his work easier, you know, and I so that that gave me a little boost there, you know. Other, other than that, I'd probably just be an you know, idiot writer. But I, I, do, I used to do, I would design the covers and actually color them so they'd get a real clear idea of what I had in mind. And I, I would um, lay out every panel, do a little little layout for every yeah. panel. And so I, I guess that made his life a little easier. And the, the artists liked that. All of them liked it. And, and also, here, here I was, I mean, this. You know, 14, 15, 16-year-old kid. And I'm doing these layouts for Hall of Famers. Gil Kane, Wally Wood, you know, Kurt Swan. And they respected my layout. You know, yeah. sometimes they'd help me. You know, and say, <laughs> oh, you know this, this should be over here. You know, I mean, I, I talk to Kurt Swan sometimes. And he used to write me these letters. You know, he was the nicest gentleman in the world. And he would give me little tips and stuff. It was a it was kind of a magical time. As a writer... And throughout your entire career as a writer, who were who are some of the uh, the artists that you most enjoyed working with? Well, Wally Wood, uh, Gil Kane, Kurt Swan. I, I liked working with Al Plastino. 
Uh, you know, and I did. Did uh, I'd have to think, but uh, uh, you know, I've worked with some great guys at Marvel. John B. Summer. I never really got to work with Frank Miller. You know, I gave him his first job, but yeah, <laughs> he got gobbled up by other writers, and you know, and I was I was real busy being editor in chief. I, I didn't have that. Yeah, you were. And another thing too that a lot of people don't realize, and when you were regularly publishing your blog, which I always recommend people go check out is that a lot of people understand that you were, you were the coach uh, trying to keep control of the bench and keep things running. Meanwhile, but you were the guy that also had to go upstairs and talk to the guys in charge yeah. who didn't read comics. So, so what, are we, we going to do something with Batman or what, you know, and you'd have to say, we don't publish Batman. We don't. Oh. Well, they, that's an actual story. The, uh, the international licensing uh, woman, uh, Gail Munn, she called me up all excited. She said, I just made the greatest deal for Wonder Woman. I said, Gail, we don't own Wonder Woman. You know, she said, what do you mean? She ah. said, it's a DC character. She said, what, 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 you know, uh, I said, look, call, I can't remember the, the licensing lady, whatever, the, the, the licensing division yeah. over there. I can't remember her name, but I, I said, call her up and tell her you teed up a deal for her, you know, and, you know, make it seem like you did her a favor. There you go. Yeah, and then, you know, but she was just in, insane because she, she couldn't believe we didn't own it. Wonder. She said, well, why did they call me? And I said, because we're Marvel Comics. We are 70% of the market. People think we're comics. You know, that's it. And so, you know, you know, we get that a lot. You know, why what are, why are you doing this to Superman? Yeah. You don't have any control of that, you know. Maybe she saw a random copy of uh, the second Spider-Man super, uh, Superman crossover, which you had a little something to do with that one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. yeah. I don't think she ever actually looked at a... At yeah, they it, yeah. As a matter of fact, that's, that's why I got to go... And on all these trips to like toy companies, Frankfurt Book Fair, and, and and stuff like that, is because they quickly discovered that I was presentable, not like this. I was presentable, and that I, I was the only one who could talk intelligently about the comics. You know, mm-hmm. and so you know, so instead of sitting there and blinking their big cow eyes when the German uh, publish, publisher was asking them what we we're going to do with the X Men, X who, you know, you know, when I was there, I'd say, well, this is what we're, we're going to do, and da 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 da. And so I helped them sell. Same with G.I. Joe and Hasbro. You know, I, that was, I started it. Larry took, yeah. took the ball and ran with it. But, uh, you know, I was the one who went to the first meeting and I was the one who helped make the deal. And you had to corner Larry down to get him to write it because it was it, nobody wanted to do licensing work at the time. Because, correct me if I'm wrong, licensing had gotten a bad reputation for having to deal with a licensor. Well, that was later. I mean, G.I. Joe was like the, our first uh, big effort in that direction. And Larry, ex-military, explosive ordnance expert, he was working on something similar. It was called the Fury Force, and it was going to be like a revival of Sergeant Fury, except there'd be anti-terrorist, you know. Yeah. And uh, so he was. He, he told me about it. So I, I, I went to him, and I said, uh, hey, look, we've got this thing going with, with Hasbro, you know. And I said, you, you, want, you want to do this? I said, yeah, he was, he was thrilled to do it. You know, he, 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 was, he was right in the wheelhouse, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, well, can I use some of the ideas for this theory for, for this? I said, yeah, go. You know, fine, go for it. Because the thing, the, my contributions were, in the first meeting with Hasbro, they didn't know what they were going to do. They had they a one-slide slideshow. And the slideshow had the, the logo, G.I. Joe, a real American hero. and had a, a photo of a, of a soldier. That's all they had. They didn't even know how, what... What size figures they're going to make? Mm. Right, you've got to do the Star Wars side. Yeah, that, that's the most popular. It's what three and three quarters. Mm-hmm. Like that. I don't know. Yeah, three yeah. quarters. Yeah, three quarters. I because because I was a little boy once, and if you had the figures that were the same size, they'd have their GI Joe guys fighting the Star Wars guys. You know, boys. Yeah. I'm a boy. You know, I actually understood this stuff. And then they they said they said, well, what are we going to do? GI Fred, GI Steve. You know, we want a whole whole line of comic of of, of characters. I said, no, no, G.I. Joe is the name of the unit, you know, when there, and it has to be anti-terrorism. And uh, so when, when there's a terrorist crisis, you call in G.I. Joe. So they like that, and they like the anti-terrorism thing. And they, uh, they like the, the, I talked them into the Star Wars size. And so they said, you know, can you, can you give us, we want to do toys, animation, comics, you know, we want to, you know, license, you know, can you give us a storyline? And I said, yeah, we, we can handle it. You know, we'll get to it in a few, in a few days. And that's when I went to Larry. And he, he said, wow, that's great. I'll do it. 
<laughs> so mm -hmm. he did it. I think I, I think I asked Danny O'Neill to sort of be the editor, and then he wasn't interested. You know, so <laughs> it was just Larry. You know, he just you know they, nobody bothered him. I certainly wasn't going to bother him. He knew what he was doing. You know, and and if you did try to you know lecture him, he'd, he'd get cranky. You know, he, he you know it, it was that was that was great. Transformers. I I wrote the foundation story. Yes, you did. Yeah, and then Bob Budiansky took it from there. He created all the characters, and you know, Bumblebee, and you know, Sky's Scream or something. You know, all those. He did it all, and and just he did it brilliantly. It was a great job. Then we did some stuff that nobody really wanted to do. Nobody wanted to do sectars. You know, uh, nobody wanted to do uh, what was it was Inhumanoids. You know. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, yeah, there were a lot of things that you know, that just you could see it was a failure out of the gate. Was ROM and Micronauts before you took over, or was that during your tenure? That was during my tenure. Okay. Um, uh, when I when I was there uh, in the first, I don't know, a few months, I guess, of uh, being editor-in-chief, um, I get this call from this guy, Stan Weston, who, you know, and uh, he, he worked for, uh, he was doing licensing for a company called Mega. Mike likes sectars. Huh? Mike likes sectars. There you go. No, they're good toys. <laughs> I, I, I like the toys. These you know, were the coolest toys. Yeah. In yeah, the, the, the toys were good, you know, but it was, there was too many limitations on us. And uh, anyway, but I, so I, I'm, I'm sitting there at my little editor in chief desk. Uh, this Stan Weston guy calls up and he said he had this, this, this thing called Micronauts, you know, would, would be interested in licensing. And I said, well, I don't know. What is it? You know? And, and so he sent me a box of toys. And so I had all these toys on my desk, you know, and they really looked pretty cool. They really look pretty cool. I thought, oh, I don't know, maybe, you know. And then Bill Mantlow walks into my office. And he's, 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 I've got this stuff, this toys for my kids, then they're great, and we should license them. I said, what's called? He said, Micronauts. I said, well, look, Bill. <laughs> look what's on my kid. He was thrilled to do it, and he did it. I think it was one of the best things he ever did. Yeah, I agree. Those first 12 issues, him and Mike Golden, absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't hurt to have Michael Golden with you. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> And then, and then Rom, I don't know how the president of the company uh, uh, calls me up to his office, and I don't know how he got involved with this. I guess uh, some somehow he met somebody who, and who introduced him to this thing, and he had this 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 Rom robot, you know. He said, "What do you think of this?" You know, I don't oh, know. Okay, you know. And he says, hey, "Look, lights flash and it makes a noise." You know. Okay. He said, "He said I think we should do a comic book." I thought, well, you, the comic book expert, are telling me. Okay. Um, I said, all right, well. Uh, and he says, he says, why don't we uh, go up to Parker Brothers and uh, make a deal? I said, all right. So the two of us took the shuttle up to Boston and rented a car and, and drove out to Parker Brothers, which was in a really great wooded you know, setting and a beautiful you know, lot and nice building. Um, and uh, we met with them. And... Uh, you know, I mean, the Golden just—he had already decided. You know, yeah. I don't know why. You know, why he thought that was so thrilling. But um, so I, I once again, I wrote sort of the foundation, and then turned it over to Bill because he was—he—he he liked it. He wanted to do it. And, you know, I mean, he—he he, he really, I gave him bare bones, and he—he he took it from there. I mean, I mean, he has a character in there. I think his, his name is Brandy. That, that's a—that's a Bill name. That wasn't mine. Yeah. Um, <laughs> No, I mean that's fine. It's a, it's a yeah. fine name. It's nothing I would can think of, you know. So he he did a lot of them, but he put a lot of flesh on the bone, and and I think that's another thing he did that was really good. And we also he got Steve Ditko to draw. Ah, I loved it. I loved it. And uh, everybody wanted to ink Steve, so we had all these great inkers, you know, lined up to ink the next Steve Ditko book. So from the business point of view, on the licensing. You know, you're. Re it's really that's the second generation of licensed books. Just with, you know, Star Wars, Conan, Planet of the Apes, Star Trek, and Godzilla in the late '70s, and then you go into the J.I. Joe, Micronauts, Transformers. You know, Thundercats. Well, well, Conan was already there. The other ones, I think, came during my my tenure, whether I liked it or not. In some cases, we had uh, Godzilla. We had um, Shogun Warriors. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Some of that was kind of you know forced on me. Um, but I'll tell you what, that, that was some of the best stuff that Doug Minch ever did. And, and I think some of my favorite, 
I think Herb, I heard Herb really knocked it out of the park too for a oh, license. Oh yeah, Herb. I, yeah, I thought he was great. He was great on those titles. Yeah, yeah. Those those were interesting times. The thing is, we, you know, it's not everything worked. You know, I'm not saying there weren't some things that were, you know, not great. I mean, but um, but oh, there was a lot of it that was really good. Were they, were they lucrative? Hmm? Were the licensed books lucrative? Because you don't own the IP, you right. you you only have them for a certain amount of the license period. So was it were they lucrative during the period to to be doing that? Well, so, well, it depends on the property, but I mean, like Star Wars, it kept Marvel in business when it otherwise would have died, all by itself. And uh, Transformers sold like crazy. Conan actually did really, really well, and especially the black and white Conan, because, mm, yeah. because according to um, the, you know the, the costs versus the, the the profit, it was actually our most profitable book, book for a while. You know, okay. it's a black and white book. Yeah, you know, cheap, cheap to print, and it sold really, really well. So it actually was very profitable book for us. You know, the thing is that that that, that was great because then I had more money to play with, and I could uh, see they left me alone because none of those people upstairs had ever opened a comic book, and they didn't. And as long as things were going well, they didn't bother me, except yeah. occasionally they'd say, "Oh, we really need to do Rom." You know, all right, <laughs> but that worked out okay. I mean, Rom the comic book way outlasted Rom the toy. Oh yeah, like I had a pretty free hand when I took that job. Uh, Jim Galton told me you're here to preside over the death of Marvel Comics. Almost those words, because he he thought comics were just a total loser because we they were losing money when I came in, right? Not a lot, but they were losing money. And I said, "You're so wrong. I said, this is going to be we're going to be bigger than Disney." And, and he said, "Oh, baloney, you know." And I, I said, "I said, you know, you wait." I said, "We're a long way from there." But we can start. Man, we we were on our way, you know. Uh, we were doing pretty good. And the thing is, because I had a pretty free hand, I was able to get these great artists and, and writers. I got David Michelin from DC. I got uh, you know all these great new artists, Wilson Kevich, and and you know, and, and after that, uh, you know, guys like Paul Smith, and, and you know, of course, we already had John Romita Jr. was one of the greatest, uh, great storyteller. Good art. So anyway, then, then so I, we, 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 I, I doubled the rates. I doubled them again. I kept increasing them as I could. You know, I was, I was known as the hardball negotiator. Because John O'Meara mm-hmm. Turner came in and he, he wanted to, when his contract expired, he wanted to negotiate a new one. And he wanted a $3 raise. I said, well, I was going to give you 10 but, you know, you know I mean, we, 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 I, 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 we got on their page. They couldn't change work for hire. They wouldn't let me do that. I, I, I increased the page rate. I, I established a continuity bonus. You do so many issues in a row, get a bonus, right? Uh, and then later the royalties. And I, we provided to freelancers. We provided health care. We provided life insurance. Really good health care. Paid for all their supplies. You know, the ink pens, you know, whatever. Try to buy a Winsor Newton brush. You would have a couple hundred bucks for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it was really good for a while. You, know? you said you couldn't change work for hire, but you did. Oh, sort of. I mean, I did. We established the Epic line. Where yes. the creator owned the stuff. I said, I can't do it with Spider-Man, but we could anything new, you know, if we publish it through the Epic line. But I probably, that was funny. You know, we conned Archie into coming back, and um, and he was going to do the creator own. And at, at that time, the creator own consisted of Epic Illustrated Magazine, mm-hmm. which he just did a great job. And, you know, and then it just looked great. The covers were great. Everything was, he, he was, he was one of the best ever, maybe the best ever, you know. And he was working for me, you know. <laughs> Then uh, what happened was uh, Starlin and Walt Simonson and Frank Miller came to me and they said, we want to we do create our own comic books. I said, okay. I said, what do you mean, okay? Uh, I said, you can just decide that? I said, yes. And, and they said, well, uh, you know, what do you mean? I said, oh, let's, let's, let's go see the publisher. We walk into Mike Hobson's office and I said, these guys want to do create our own comic books. He said, what are you bothering me for? You know. <laughs> so anyway, as it turned out, instead of doing a series, Walt ended up doing Star Slammers as a graphic novel. Mm. Okay. At that time, Jeanette Kahn was like just all over Frank Miller. I mean, he, she was courting him. You know, he ended up going over there to do Ronin. 
And uh, so the only guy that out of those first three did a, a, a radio creator own comic book series was Starlet. Dread started really well. But the funny thing is, here's the funny part of the story is, is I, so I walk into Archie's office once I, you know, get Starlin, you know, these three guys, I think, are going to do this stuff. I walk in, it's Archie, great idea, epic comics. And he lost his mind at me. He said, well, I'm overworked already. I can't, you know, what are you trying to do to me? Should I kill you? <laughs> and, you know, it's like 140 pounds of twisted steel, man. Backed off, you know. So I thought, what am I going to do, you know? So Starlin was big buddies with uh, Al Nover. So I went and I asked Al, I said, you'd be interested in doing this? He said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, next morning, Archie comes in. He kind of storms into my office. He's screaming at me. How dare you give away Epic Comics? Epic is mine. <laughs> <laughs> Make up your mind, pal. Will you? You know, so anyway, I tell, I tell Al, you know, I'm going to give this to Archie. And he's like, well, wait, wait, you can't take this from me. I said, yes, I can. And I'm going to give it to Archie. You know, because he's the epic guy. So if you notice on the first issue of Dreadstar, Milgram has a co-editor credit. You know, a little appeasement. <laughs> was was Marvel Fanfare the consolation prize? No, no, uh, that was that was uh, I think that was Al's idea. Okay, I thought it was a good idea. You know, no, yeah, it was. I, I I loved it. I, I it was a great <laughs> anthology book. It could be anything at any point. Yeah, and and because well, several reasons. Uh, you know, because it was, it was a series, it was a bunch of one shots by different artists, and sometimes there were more than one in the same book. So doing a royalty on that would have been, you know, would have been higher math. So what we did instead is we just paid, I don't know, it was maybe double the rate, something like that. We gave them an extra rate. And, and so we got really good guys. We had, you know, Michael Golden and, and uh, I don't know who else. Well, we had good guys. Uh, Ken Stacy and that awesome yeah. Iron Man. Story yeah. He did. That's yeah. one of my all time favorite Iron Man and Dr. Octopus stories. Yes. And yeah. Vest doing that, uh, that Warriors three story. I mean, there was just, those first 36 issues is, is absolutely, I, if I had to pick one book to encapsulate your tenure at Marvel and Marvel, the eighties, I would say Marvel fanfare. Cause it, well, it wouldn't be a bad choice. It wouldn't <laughs> be a bad choice. And Al did a great job with it. I mean, he, he, he was really into it. And he was also everybody liked him, and he was really good at, at working with artists, and, and uh, got some great guys. You know, we did some fun stuff. Secret Wars too. Well, yeah, yeah, he, yeah, with Leia Aloha. Yeah, Leia Aloha inking him. Yeah, know? he did a good job. I mean, Al's style is a little, you know, cartoony. That was it. I didn't care. But he, he was the story like crazy. Exactly. Leia Aloha, Leia Aloha, you know, made it look great. But Al, Al was a utility guy. I mean, he was. You knew, like, you could go to Al and he could just do the work. You knew you were going to get it. You weren't going to have any headaches, right? Right. Because, um, you know, at that point in time, I was a big uh, Avengers fan. Oh, yeah. And Al was doing, you know, a lot of work on that book. It was Bob Hall and Al Milgram were kind of jumping yeah. around on that book. Yeah, Bob Hall did a lot of them. Al wasn't, I don't know that Al was particularly one of the, you know, fan favorites, but he was, he always seemed like a guy who, who could get the work done when he needed to get done. Well, fan favorite or not, that stuff sold like crazy. I mean, it was, uh, you know, I think that he tells the story really well. You know, maybe his style isn't as flashy as Jim Lee, but, but you know, he, he tells the story really well. He draws draws well. And he did a good job. I mean, he, he was editor for a while. He got tired of that. He wanted to be a freelancer, especially because he made more money getting royalties you know, than he, he could as an editor, although I, I try to pay those editors the best I could. I mean, I say I, I'm, I wrote the budget every year. Okay. The situation was if, uh, if I could, you know, save money on the costs, which I did. And if I beat the sales projections and I had money to play with, you know, and so what, what I do, I give Larry Hama a big race. <laughs> I, I went to a convention, uh, last year, uh, Larry was there and we were, uh, after the sh show, uh, we were waiting for somebody else. I can't remember. But we, so we, we sat in the bar, the bar for a minute, and we were just talking about the old days. And he said, he said, you know, I couldn't wait to get to work every day. And I said, <laughs> I said, I know exactly how you feel. <laughs> you know, it was a good time. It was a really good time, and we were great guys. And Milgram went off, and he, became, he did artwork, and then he, he did fine. Well, West Coast Avengers sold well, right? Yes. yes. And, and, and when Al left, we, had, we got Carl Potts. That's, that's not a bad deal you know i mean carl he was relatively new 
when he came in, but he learned like crazy. And also, I didn't even know this, but uh, Larry Hama kind of took him under his wing and, and, and did a lot of like explaining and teaching. And Carl, he was as sharp as a tack, man. And he, he picked it up and then he, he became a teacher himself. You know, and, and he worked with more young talent. He looked at more art samples than anybody. You know, and I'm a big Alien Legion fan, so um, yeah. And yep. I've, I've still got my fingers crossed that he's he's going to be able to get to see that yeah. on as a movie property. He's been yeah. shopping for that for a while, and I'm I'm waiting for that. Yeah, Chris Warner uh, was doing art for that, and uh, he's mm-hmm. now uh, an editor or some kind of senior editor or something at Dark Horse. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, oh, another you know something I want to tell you. I, I've never gotten to say this in an interview before. But, you know, sometimes books, they get late. And my, you know, when I came in there, there everything was late. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were supposed to ship 45 color comics in my first month. We shipped 26. Okay. Because that's how late everything was. I had books yeah. on my desk that should have been on sale four months earlier. Yes. You know, but they just came in so late. The writers, the artists, they just didn't deliver. They didn't. It wasn't like DC, you know, where you you better deliver. So I said, oh, i got to fix this. And I'll tell you, we had... Actually, throughout the 10 years I was there, we would have uh, occasional jobs that kind of went down to the wire, you know, but everything made shipping. Never missed shipping. No book in 10 years missed shipping. Okay? So anyway, but but here's guys, and you're asking them to, like, stay up all night and finish this thing. And that's not fair, you know? So I invented combat pay. (laughs) I I said, all right, you know, if you have to do something in a hurry, pay a rate and a half. If it's really in a hurry, <laughs> I'll pay a double rate. And there were times where it had to be, if I had to have, you know, several guys up all night, I paid triple rate. Wow. Know? And we, you know, and we were making so much money. And I kept finding ways to cut costs. I mean, when I started, the coloring was done on photostats. You know, remember photostats? You know, yeah. okay. Uh, which came out on this glossy paper and, and it was horrible to color on, but. And so I thought, and then we get this newfangled copy machine that changes sizes. Huh. So I discovered that I could put a, a comic book page on the, on the copy machine. My, my cost for a photostat was over a dollar for each one. Okay. And think about how, how many pages Marvel did a year yeah. times a dollar 20 or something. Yeah. My cost for a photocopy was two cents. Okay. I went home. I had a coloring kit. I went home, tested it out. I thought this works good. And so I, I told everybody, we're going to start coloring on paper. And at first, the colorists were outraged. And, you know, they're ruining everything. The stat guys were losing their minds. We're going to get laid off, you know. I said, no, you're not. And uh, the, at two weeks later, the colorists loved it. So anyway, at PS, the stat guys, see, I knew we were sending a lot of stuff out, a lot of film to be duplicated out for the international licensees to bring it in house. So we saved money there. We saved money on paper. And we saved... So I saved a whole big ton of money, which I used to, you know, pay people better. You know, so, so and then, you know, like I say, then, then I could afford combat. And we, we, anyway, we, we, just, we did everything we could to make it better, make it good, care about it. You also fixed the problem of uh, the kids who sent in uh, subscriptions and never got their subscriptions. Yeah, we had this receptionist, uh, her name was Josie, but... And what would happen is a lot of kids would send in like uh, money, bills or, or quarters taped to the form or something like that. C- uh, Kathy uh, Beekman, who later, later became Kathy, Kathy Nuzzleese, or maybe it was the other way around, she was in charge of subscriptions. And they, we got so many that she had the receptionist, Josie, you know, opening the things and you know, you know, sorting them and stuff. Well, guess what? When, when there was money in there, real ca- she just took it. And then she'd throw the form away, you know. And so people are complaining to me at conventions. When I subscribed, I didn't get any books. And I said, uh, I'll look into it. I, I discovered, as I was walking out one day, and, and this cleaning lady, Anna, was emptying Josie's trash into her big bin. And all these subscription forms falling out of there. So I said, Anna, give me a, a bag. And I put them all in this bag. So the next day I went to show Kathy. I said, this is stealing money. And uh, Kathy's, no, no, that's impossible. She'd never do that. So I went upstairs to Barry Kaplan, VP of Finance, and I kind of dumped the stuff out on his desk and told him what was going on. And so, you know, and he 
overruled Kathy. And they just they they let her they they fired her, but they, they didn't. You know, nobody went after her. We we weren't yeah. we weren't mean about it. But yeah, but then people started actually getting their subscription copies. You know, which was. But again, that that was endemic of of what you inherited when you took over. There was a lot of corruption. I'm telling yeah. you, there was a lot of double vouchering and a lot of cheating and a lot of uh, I don't know. We would get checks sometimes for uh, for things. And this one character who worked for us. He had somehow convinced the Chinese restaurant downstairs that you know that they should cash these Marvel checks for him, and they did. And the checks cleared and everything. You know, so this goes on for a while, right? And I, then I also, in those days, you had to pay like uh, for long distance calls. And I had this one guy. He used to come in late every day. I'm like, why is he? I, I just talked to him. I said, he can't be coming in here at eleven to one o'clock. You know. And, uh, and then I found out, I was going over the phone bills, you know, I found out that he was on the phone to a friend in Georgia all night, every night. And the bill, his, so everybody else's phone bill is $100 or, you know, $100 or his was like 2000 Jesus. You know? yeah, and, and so, so, I mean, weeding out all the cheaters and yeah. know, theft and corruption and all that stuff. It wasn't easy, but I mean, um, that also saved money. And actually, the main thing that saved money was getting the books on time. Because yeah. before, when everything was late, all right, uh, you had to pay late charges at the printer, at the separator. You know, or, or there were like penalties because they had reserved time and you didn't deliver. You know, and also the plates were zinc in those days, and they were they were made. In Connecticut, that uh, was a chemical color plate, I think it was called. But anyway, so uh, they were the separate hand separation. So they made these zinc plates, and then you had to express ship them to Sparta, Illinois, where the printer was. That costs a lot of money. You know how heavy zinc plates are. <laughs> when I got everything on time, it didn't have to be shipped express. You know, and everything was you know on time. Uh, then uh, that saved a fortune. Saved up for which gave me more money to play with, you know. And so I'd come up with some other crazy idea to, to try to make things better. Give I, I used to have other uh, executives, they say, How do you get away with giving these people 10 15 percent raises? Because our guideline is two and a half percent, you know. And I say, well, You know, beat your buddy, you, you can do it too. So I did. So I, I always, you know, I, I did every dirty thing I could. That every, I'm sorry, every honest uh, to, to save money and make more money than the projections. And, and we always did. We always did. You know, you get a bunch of people like Larry Harma, Louise Simonson, you know, Al Milgram and Archie. Holy cow. If you, if you can't win with that team, fire the coach. <laughs> and speaking of the, being the coach, uh, you were also the, the public spokesman. You had, whether I don't know if you ever attended to or not, but you filled the vacuum that Stan kind of once had, being sort of the faves and the caricatures and everything on else. And and the EICs in between the two of you really didn't do much of that. But you decided, okay, or someone else put you up front. How did how did how did it evolve that suddenly you were I'm Jim Starlin and then uh, um, I'm Jim Shooter and the buck stops here. Yeah, the thing was, see, before I even started, Stan had stopped being involved with the comic. Yeah, okay. he'd been the president of the company for a while. He hated it, and so he, he they, then they called him publisher. But he really wasn't doing that. Publisher is a business job, and he, he didn't want it. He had no interest. But so he, what he was was he was Stanley. He was Marvel's face to the world. He, he was on the lecture circuit, uh, and then and then the Spider-Man strip started, and then you know, and he was always trying to sell stuff, you know, Hollywood, you know, uh, TV, movies, cartoons, yeah. and that was his job, you know. And he didn't have anything to do with the comics. He wasn't even on the organizational chart. I did not report to him. He did not run the comic, right? I did. Yeah. And uh, Stan Lee, you know, and if he wants to talk to me about the comics, you bet. Uh, then he moves out to L.A. because we had we built a studio out there. And uh, and so he, he moved out there and took an office there. And he wasn't even around that much anymore. We, we were always sending each other. There was no email then, so we sent each other telegrams. <laughs> but this is back when there were telegrams. Think about that. Telegram for Jim Shooter. <laughs> and, and they're writing each other letters. I have all kinds of letters. And, and, uh, oh, wow. It was um, 
you know, and I'm on the phone all the time. Cause I mean, like, you know, sometimes I just, I just needed to talk to somebody, you know, and yeah. uh, ask for his advice. And he was always happy to help. I mean, he always, you know, he had a great deal of sympathy for what I was going through. I mean, for instance, when I wanted to get the royalty program started, the projections were there was going to cost us, uh, it's going to take three quarters of a million dollars off the bottom line. So if the sales didn't go up enough because of the royalty program to cover that, then we'd be losing money, right? Not, not, we'd, ask, we'd be making money. We'd be making three quarters of a million dollars less. Even though I, the president told me, you, you can go ahead and do this, when he saw the numbers, he said, ah, we need to talk to the board. You know, The board was in, in uh, for Cadence Industries, which owned Marvel, was uh, in West Caldwell, New Jersey. And so we, I had to go with Galton to pitch this to the board and try to convince them, no, it's worth the risk of losing three quarters of a million dollars because if we don't, we're dead. Uh, because DC, DC had announced their royalty program. So anyway, I asked Stan if he, he would happen to be in the office. I asked Stan, I said, would you come with me? And he said, oh, yeah, sure. So the, the three of us went there. And, it's, you know, it's like Stan didn't really pitch it. I pitched it. He, he would do things like, he's right. <laughs> and and, uh, and so we, we, we convinced the board to do it. And uh, we got permission from the board. And then it, it actually didn't cost us three quarters of a million dollars. It cost us two million dollars the first year. Two million. What that means is that we sold way more in projections. Way more. Because, you know, we kept the good guys we got, guys who, you know, had left, you know, came back. We had uh, new guys dying to get in because you can make money, you know? Yeah. You can make money tomorrow. You know? That was an adventure. But I mean, Stan, see, he was always helpful. He always, you know, he had a great deal of sympathy for my problems. But in between, in between you and Stan, I mean, you've got, you know, when did a run, you know, Roy did a Marv, run, did a run. Gary Conway and Archie. Right. You're the first one after Stan that really is a caricature in the comics. That's really yeah. a personality that connected, I think, with fans. You were always out there. Like Stan had a soapbox. But I always remember you. I Like, I'd seen the names of the other guys, but then I saw your name, but I also could equate you with an image, a caricature, a face. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of guys who have done that, who have come out in front and been like, you know, I'm the guy. Well, the thing is, the, all the guys before me, Roy was the first, okay? And then there was Len, Marv, Jerry Conway for three weeks, and then Archie yeah. Goodwin. And, and Archie did it at Epic. Yes. Well, no, Archie I, Archie was the editor-in-chief for 19 months, and then uh, he, he got sick of it right. And for a lot of reasons. It's a long story. Uh, so he left to become a contract writer, all right? And he was supposed to write three books a month. Archie never wrote three books in a, in a month, in the best month of his life. And meanwhile, pretty much at Stan's urging, uh, we were going to do this. I was going to do this uh, creator-owned magazine, right? And at first it was going to be called Odyssey, and then we found out we couldn't use it. And then we came up with Epic and Illustrated. And, and Archie actually might have done that. I don't know. Anyway, but I, what I did was I, I talked Archie into coming back. See, Archie, Archie hated the bureaucracy. His eyes glazed over when he talked to lawyers or accountants. He just hated that stuff. I said, I'll pave the road. So all he had to do was worry about the creative. And I did the budgets. I did the, you know, the yeah. paperwork. I fought with the licensing people. You know, and then that gave Archie you know, a pretty free hand to do what he loved. And boy, did he do it. So anyway, Archie, and that, was, that was just wonderful. And so, but we had actually had this other guy, Rick Marshall, and he was, we, we fired him. I actually was ordered by the president to fire him because he made a $60,000 mistake. Oof. And uh, that wasn't his first one. He tells the story differently, but I, this is true. The president Galton said, get rid of this guy. And I said, okay. So I did. The thing is, he, uh, we had something on a tight deadline and he had relatives visiting from Germany and, um, he said, "I want to take some days off." I said, "You got a, you got a hard deadline. Here. You know, you, you, you can't. We, you have to be here." So then he calls in sick. So I, I actually had to fire him over the phone because he, he didn't, didn't show up. He, he kept calling in sick. So anyway, I mean, we got rid of him, and he had started on Epic, right? Then I convinced Archie to take it, and pretty much scrapped what Rick had done. 
and it just did it pretty much from scratch. I, I think even he may have come up with the name Epic Illustrated because we didn't really have a name because Odyssey didn't work out. Yeah, but you know that, that was that's the story of how Epic got started. Started out, gave it to this guy Marshall, and then that, he didn't work out. The president told me to get rid of him, and then I managed to convince the, the greatest and maybe the greatest ever Archie to come in and do it. And then you know all I had to do was do a little bureaucracy stuff for him. You know, work with the bureaucrats a little, licensing people and stuff. That was a great. That was one of the best things that ever happened. The two great days when Archie came to work for me. And then I hired, I hired three people who all started on the same day. Denny O'Neill, Larry Hama, and Louis Simons. They had the best team ever assembled. Thank you for tuning in to GalaxyCon Talks Comics. We hope you'll join us again next time. And don't forget to follow us online at GalaxyCon Talks Comics.com.